Welcome to The Journey, a chronological study which goes through scripture from Genesis to Revelation in chronological order. So now we move into Daniel 5 through 6. So I just want to talk just a little bit, just kind of catch us back up in the history of things, what's happening in the world. 555, we're beginning to see just the very beginnings of, of the what we call the pre-Socratic philosophers of Greece, um, the beginning of their big you know, philosophical uh, uh, eruption, which leads to Socrates, Plato, and, and Aristotle, and then from there. Um, and and Anaximander is one of the first of those. And so we know he's around about this time proposing a mathematical model of the universe. We also know this is around the same time that Sparta is developing this really uh, famous and effective uh, army, defensive army. Um, you may have heard of the Spartans and how how what incredible warriors they were. Well, that's happening in this 200 year period. So that's what's happening in Greece. Um, the um, the big thing, though, that we're starting to see is what's happening in Persia. So we have this individual named Cyrus, literally called Cyrus the Great. Um, Lorraine, uh, not Lorraine, Lorraine's my daughter. Meredith, you'll want to lower your hand, otherwise I won't know if you raise it again. Um, uh, so Cyrus the Great is beginning to take over the world. He's the next great empire leader. Um, and he basically uh, conquers the Median Empire. He he defeats the king of, of Media at that moment, and Cyrus defeats him, but he does something interesting, um, which is worth noting because this pattern is repeated in Cyrus. It's kind of part of his genius in, in conquering the world. He actually produces the biggest empire we've seen yet, um, and I know we keep saying that, but that's kind of the nature of the world, that each empire kind of ups the last one, and and the, Cyrus does it in an interesting way, though, and we begin to see that pattern with the king. What he does is he actually conquers the king of Media, but instead of killing him, after he conquers him, he marries his daughter, and then he adopts him as his father. Um, and he does that so that the Medes will accept Cyrus as the rightful heir of, of Mede, instead of seeing him as a conqueror. So he does conquer, but then he does what he can to kind of engender this loyalty from people by saying, see? I'm the rightful heir. I actually, uh, you know, Astyages is my father. And, um, and so it's an interesting approach. And he does this several times in several different ways as he conquers. Um, he goes on, he defeats Lydia, which is uh, over in Africa and King Croesus. He, um, and then in 539, he's actually going to conquer Babylon. And, and this idea of, of engendering loyalty in the people he conquers is, is part of his genius. And we'll see that he does this. He's, he's amazingly skilled. In fact, if you, if you look him up, what you'll see is a lot of people don't, don't even, he's called Cyrus the Great. He's undoubtedly a conqueror. He did conquer nations. But what you'll often see him referred to is somebody who united the Middle East, someone who united the Medes and the Persians, it's even called the Medo-Persian Empire, because instead of simply supplanting them, he brought them all together. So essentially what he does is he conquers all these little, little, uh, these little kingdoms, and and then somehow become seen as the rightful heir in each of these kingdoms, so that they're all willing to follow him, and they're all willing to come together. And every time he conquers something, that's what he tries to do, is bring unity and show that he's actually the rightful heir. I'm not saying this makes him a good guy. He's He can be pretty brutal, and in fact, you could argue it makes him super, right, super political and and chameleon-like. It's hard to know what he actually believes because he sort of will believe whatever you want him to believe if you'll be loyal to him. Um, but it does make him uh, pretty smart and it does make him very effective at the time. And um, just to show you kind of how effective he was, here's a, here's a map 
of the Persian Empire. This is all of the purple. Everything that's purple is his empire. Um, if you look over uh, in the near the in the Mediterranean Sea, over there on the left side of the picture, um, where it says Cyprus, for example, I'm just trying to orient you. That's that's kind of where Israel is. You can see Egypt um, down there by the Sinai Desert um, and Arabia, and then you can see that the Persian Empire goes all the way out from India to the Mediterranean Sea. Um, so it's huge. It's it's a really very very large, very large area. Cyrus himself actually doesn't conquer Egypt. He actually stops short of that, but his uh, his successor pushes on out to Egypt, conquers Egypt and and Libya and some of that Thebes, some of that area there. Um, but a lot of this is is due directly to to Cyrus uh, conquering all of them. While this is going on um, back in uh, Babylon. There's something that's going on, which is actually weakening Babylon. So before he conquers Babylon, you can see Babylonia down there near Arabia. Before he conquers Babylon, so before that's part of the purple area, um, while he's still out conquering the rest of the area, there's something going on in Babylon. What happens is that Nebuchadnezzar is gone. Nabonidus succeeds Nebuchadnezzar. But Nabonidus does this weird thing that nobody understands for sure. I mean, you can just you can take it at face value, but even at face value, it's a sort of a, it's an interesting thing. It's definitely a strange thing. Um, Nabonidus exiles himself. He goes off to an oasis um, in the Arabian desert, a place called Tema. And he leaves, he just kind of leaves his kingdom. He leaves Babylon. He goes to Tema. And yeah. the, the, what he says is that he does that uh, because he's just going to there to worship the moon god, whose name is Sin. That's just a coincidence, but it's interesting for us. Um, so he goes off to worship sin, you could say. And uh, he goes to Tema, he leaves. And when he does, uh, he leaves behind uh, Belshazzar, not to be confused with Belteshazzar, uh, which is Daniel, but Belshazzar, who is the next king. So he leaves Belshazzar behind, who was like his co-regent. But probably what happened is the same thing. Remember when Nebuchadnezzar went crazy for seven years and his the the kind of the the officials, the leaders, they just put somebody in place to rule while Nebuchadnezzar was gone, so the kingdom didn't fall apart. Same thing seems to happen here, that Nabonidus just leaves, he goes to Tema, so they appoint this guy named Belshazzar, who apparently is not very good. Um, and it, it significantly, Babylon just gets weaker and weaker and weaker, so that by the time Cyrus comes in, um, there's, it, it's, a, it's pretty easy, it's not what it used to be. Um, Couple of things, because we're going to read Daniel 5 and see it. It refers to Belshazzar as, Daniel refers to Belshazzar, or rather refers to Nebuchadnezzar as Belshazzar's father. We know historically that's not literally true, that, that Belshazzar is not related to Nebuchadnezzar at all, but it's very possible that what Daniel meant was simply Nebuchadnezzar was the father of Babylon, right? He's kind of the founder of everything. And so he may have just been referring to Nebuchadnezzar as his father in that sense, you know, kind of the, the father of all the kings. In, in a sense, kind of a, it's a metaphorical thing. Um, so Belshazzar serves as the co-regent um, for his father uh, around 545 BC is kind of when this starts. Uh, Nabonidus returns from Tema and he takes control of Babylon, but not for very long um, after, because it's pretty quickly, it's not too long after yes. that, that um, Cyrus comes and conquers. So that's kind of the history. I just wanted to share that with you. You'll see those references as we read Daniel 5, and now you'll kind of have an idea of what's happening as we read through it. Um, oh, before we do that, this is called the Cyrus Cylinder. 
So in uh, 539, so this is right when Cyrus takes over, uh, when he conquers Babylon, right after he's done so, he commissions uh, a, this cylinder, which is just a, it's like a, it's a way to record special events. Um, and uh, you can get a lot of text on the cylinder. And so he commissions this cylinder, which is called accurately, but not very creatively by historians, the Cyrus Cylinder. So this is the Cyrus Cylinder. And in it, what he does is he talks about his conquering of Babylon, but what he actually does is something that, again, we've seen that's part of the pattern. What he does is he claims that Marduk, the god of Babylon, appointed Cyrus to be the next king because Nabonidus had abandoned Marduk to go worship Sin. So in other words, he takes this historical thing that happened where Nabonidus went away and he says, look, you guys, I am not supplanting. I'm not conquering you guys. I am here because Marduk appointed me to be your king because your previous king left you, abandoned you. And what he was really doing was abandoning Marduk. And so Marduk is angry. And so Marduk appointed me to be your new king. And it kind of works. He not only conquers Babylon, but once again, he gets the loyalty of Babylonians because they're like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Nabonidus was a bad guy. He did, He neglected us. He abandoned us. Belshazzar, everybody knows he was terrible. Um, so here comes Cyrus. That makes sense. Marduk put him in charge. We accept that. So just like that, it's kind of like he conquers, but then it's like it becomes the, the Medo-Persian Empire, as far as the Babylonians are concerned, is just an extension of the Babylonians. It's clearly not. But this is kind of the genius of Cyrus. He manages to convince everybody that He's, he's on their side and he's the rightful heir and he should be their leader. And that's what this cylinder is all about. So it's kind of a fascinating historical uh, moment to see this pattern repeated that he's just, he's saying, I'm, I didn't take over, I'm the rightful heir and here's why. And, um, and that's what this cylinder is a little bit. So we're a little bit ahead of ourselves in scripture. Cyrus hasn't yet defeated King Belshazzar, but we'll read uh, Daniel 5 and see how it unfolds from Daniel's perspective. So this is about 539 BC. This is right when Cyrus is about to conquer. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, and again, not actually his father, but could just mean founder of Babylon, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. And as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So here they are. They take the, the, the sacred elements from the temple, which interestingly enough, Nebuchadnezzar had brought over, but either didn't use them inappropriately or just didn't use them, um, because this seems to be a kind of a new offense. And so he takes all of those things and they use those to toast their gods. So obviously it's not a, it's not a good culturally aware move, um, but he doesn't care. He's the king. Um, and this really bizarre thing happens. And it's easy to read this story, I think. And I, you really have to picture this. This is like a horror movie moment. I think this is, this is, this is extremely chilling. I think it's, it's entirely understandable why this was so terrifying to uh, Belshazzar, because this is a terrifying thing to see. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared, just, just the hand. It's like maybe even just the fingers, right? We're not seeing a body here. And this hand just starts writing on the wall. Uh, suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. And the king watched the hand as it wrote. That's one of those great understatements of scripture. Of course he did. What else are you going to do? 
um, here's this hand writing on the wall. So he wrote it. This, by the way, is where we get the phrase, the writing on the wall, meaning that your time is up. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Uh, why third highest ruler? Because Nabonidus is still around. Um, so there's Nabonidus, there's Belshazzar, and then this would be the third highest ruler in the kingdom would be whoever solves this. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew more pale. It does seem like it would be important to understand what this hand is trying to communicate. This is really scary stuff. I want to know what it says. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live, live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. It appears that since Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel has what? Retired or been displaced. Um, he's, he's still around in the kingdom, but he wasn't immediately one of these wise men that came in. He's not somebody that they would have been looking to. We're going to see in a little bit that Daniel clearly does not like Belshazzar. Uh, in the way that with Nebuchadnezzar, he actually showed some affection and some respect from the very beginning. But with Belshazzar, he actually, he clearly doesn't like him. So it's very possible that he just, he doesn't care to be part of his, his administration. Um, and, uh, and we're even going to see that in a second. So that's why I think she has to tell Belshazzar, hey, there's this guy that in, in kind of your ancestor's time and Nebuchadnezzar's time was really a big deal. And he, he was really good at this, puzzles and riddles and visions and stuff. You should bring him in. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, chanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this become Daniel, whom, because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father, the king, brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. And then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. This is fascinating because Daniel never turned anything down from Nebuchadnezzar, right? This isn't like just a principled thing of, I can't work for you, you're a Babylonian. Again, I don't think he likes Belshazzar. I don't think he likes his administration. He, so he's like, I'll make you third highest ruler in the kingdom. And Daniel's like, yeah, I don't want that, but I'm going to help you. But I don't want your gifts. I, I don't want that. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. Your, your, your father, the, the, the person you follow, King Nebuchadnezzar was a great man, and he had a lot of control and a lot of power. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was, de he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was so much great. It's almost like Daniel saying he was so much greater than you. And yet look what happened to him. 
He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets them over it sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. You can even ask why Daniel's saying all this. This is not strictly necessary to explain what the writing says. Daniel can answer his question without going into this history. But there is a part of him which I think is wants to rub it in a little bit to say, you're, you're just not your, you're not your father. You're not Nebuchadnezzar. You're not, you're not like him. He humbled, he eventually was humbled. You have never humbled yourself, even though you saw what happened to him, even though you've heard about what happened to him. This is not new to you. So I'm telling you anyway, because I want you to see this is why what I'm about to explain to you is what I'm about to explain to you. Indeed, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines drank wine from him. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. And this is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. So, uh, here's a picture. This is actually a Rembrandt painting called Belshazzar's Feast. Uh, and uh, what's interesting is these words, many, many, tekel parson, these are Aramaic words. They're not illegible. They're not words that, they're, they're not words that the uh, king shouldn't have been able to read. The king and his officials, the wise men, it said no one could read the words. And yet it's just Aramaic, which is what they would have been reading and speaking. Um, there are a couple of things to explain maybe why they couldn't read it. One is Aramaic is what's called a consonantal language when it's written down, it's consonantal text. That means they don't ever write down vowels. They pronounce them, but they don't write them. They have no written text for, for vowels. And so that means that when things were written down, sometimes imagine in our language, if you take all the vowels out, there would be some words that look the same uh, once you're left with just consonants like hat and hate and heat um would all look just like ht <laughs> we wouldn't know which it was and so one possibility is just that when you have them written down without context you don't know what they are you don't know what those words really are the other possibility is that it doesn't tell us how they were spaced so maybe there were no spaces maybe it was just written down as one long sentence maybe not like this in rembrandt's picture maybe it was just written down in one long sentence so you didn't know where the letters broke up so again you could have a lot of different possible combinations that might produce some words, but they weren't sure what it said. What's interesting about this Rembrandt picture is that Rembrandt uh, has actually written the, so Aramaic like Hebrew is read from right to left. So English is read from left to right. Uh, Hebrew and Aramaic are read right to left. But what Rembrandt has done is he's written this from top to bottom. In other words, each word is written as a column. And I think it's just Rembrandt's way of saying, maybe this is why they didn't understand it because they were reading right to left, but it was actually written top to bottom, left to right, which would be completely confusing uh, to them. It doesn't seem completely inscrutable, but given the other things we've talked about, that maybe there's no spacing, maybe there's no consonants, I mean, no vowels, maybe that just made it all confusing. Or maybe God just prevented them from knowing what it said. Maybe, maybe they just were supernaturally unable to read it. We don't know why. All we know is that when, when Daniel goes to translate it, he says the words are just these words. Now, the other thing that's clear is just these words themselves don't actually tell you anything. So maybe they were able to read these words, but they didn't understand what they meant because they're just a collection of words. Mene means numbered, uh, tekel means weighed, and parson means divided. 
So literally it just says numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. So even if they could read the words, they still don't know what it means. So maybe that's all it meant. Maybe they could read the words, but they didn't know what it meant. Uh, anyway, that's where we are. As Daniel says, well, here's what it says. It says numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. And then he goes on. He explains it. Here's what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the word days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Parson, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. This is very specific, right? Uh, number, number, weighed, divided. And Daniel's like, your kingdom's numbered. You've been weighed and found wanting. And your kingdom's going to be divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. So it's actually a really specific prophecy that Daniel pulls from these four uh, just kind of nouns. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was placed the third, proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. A um, couple of weird things there at the end of this chapter. We'll get into Darius the Mede a second, because who is that? Because we know who Cyrus is, who's, who's Darius. We'll get into that in a second. Um, but before that, it's also odd that Daniel said, I don't want any of these things, and Belshazzar did it anyway. And it might be um, part of the reason Daniel may have said, I don't want these things is because he knew Belshazzar wasn't going to be around. Because you got to wonder about the value of these things, given that Belshazzar dies that night, right? He's like, you are the third highest in the land. And then, and then Babylon's conquered. Um, so kind of, kind of questionable um, what's going on there. So before we discuss Darius the Mede and, uh, and move on to chapter six or talk a little bit about what's going on, uh, any, anybody have any thoughts, comments? Anything that stands out to you from this story? I think it would be hard to, to reward Daniel for telling him that his kingdom was about to perish. That is also a surprise. I would almost have expected Belshazzar's response would have been like to kill Daniel. Walk with his head. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that is a surprise. But I think he was so Although, terrified that he, he, he maybe thought there was a chance, you know, he could repent or something. But it's interesting, well, Daniel I'm doesn't give him a chance to repent. Go ahead, Meredith. No, I was going to say, yeah, maybe he thinks that since Daniel was able to interpret or something, maybe honoring him would get him, yeah, and better graces or something. Yeah, I think that's that makes sense to me. It is interesting Daniel gives no hint that there's anything he can do. In fact, it's quite the opposite. He says, your days are numbered twice, right? Number, number, way divided. It's like your days have been numbered twice. <laughs> there's no more days. They've counted it and double counted it and checked it, and we have run out of days. And you've been weighed and found wanting. And there's nothing in there that says, but there might still be a chance for you to repent. It, so it is kind of interesting. And I think you're right, Meredith, maybe in desperation, he just thought, well, I'll honor Daniel and maybe maybe Daniel's God will repent, will relent and be kind. Any other thoughts? Anything else stand out to you guys? Well, I feel like that actually, the fact that there's no, it's not a call to repentance makes the whole thing kind of odd because like, what is the point because the new government comes in so it's not even like well daniel maybe it was building daniel's credibility but a new a new kingdom comes in so it's not even like the other people who were there like oh now we can do different things because of this and it is such a big um i mean it's certainly not the only time that like prophets come to kings and are basically like you messed up and you're done but it is such a big show of supernatural it's such a big event and then it's like and then he did die like two days later so sort of what's the point yeah that's a good question a couple of interesting things to consider one is if if nothing else this actually helps cyrus's story 
when he's like, I was appointed by God, he means a different God, but it kind of helps his story if people remember Daniel. So maybe God is actually supporting, in a sense, propping up Cyrus by doing this. Um, and then the second thing is, you might be right about Daniel, because it is interesting that Daniel is still in the administration under the Persians and Medes. So maybe the fact that he had retired and was out of the public eye, so to speak, this puts him back in it just in time for, for him to be an important figure. And knowing Cyrus's tendency to want to sort of make nice with the people he conquers, that would kind of make sense that if Daniel's in this high position and Daniel maybe he already knows Daniel doesn't like Belshazzar, you know, I mean, who knows, you know, he's like, oh, I can, I can work with Daniel. Maybe that was part of it. Maybe that's why God did it. Or maybe it's just as a demonstration of his sovereignty and his power and his, and his prophetic nature so that when Belshazzar dies, everybody who hears this story from Daniel goes, God, God is in control. Daniel's God is in control. But like, was there anyone other than Daniel still around to confirm that Daniel wasn't just like, oh, yeah, yeah, I went in there right before and told him this was going to happen? <laughs> That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> uh, anybody else? All right. Well, let's talk about Darius. This is a weird mention, and this is not easily explained. He says, after this, Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Well, this is chronologically really complicated, meaning we don't quite understand what's happening. Um, because uh, according to the chronology of Daniel, what this means is this king, who's Darius the Mede, he succeeds Belshazzar um, and rules before Cyrus, because Cyrus is going to come up in chapter six. And then uh, there, but, but to call this guy Darius who rules before Cyrus is odd, because there's no record of a Darius who ruled before Cyrus, but there is a record of a Darius who ruled after Cyrus. Um, and the Darius who ruled after Cyrus does some things. Uh, he sets up this kind of systematic structure of, of governors and satraps, which the Darius the Mede in chapter six does. So if this is the same Darius that we know of from history, he should be after Cyrus, not before. Um, the other possibility, which would mean that chapter six then perhaps is misplaced in our chronological Bible. Maybe it should be much later, or at least about 10 or 15 years later. The other possibility is that, that this is actually a reference to Cyrus himself, for who knows what reason. It is not at all unusual in scripture throughout for people to have multiple names. Daniel himself has two names, right? It's also not unusual for people to have similar names, right? Belshazzar and Belshazzar just, just work together here. Um, so could, could Cyrus also be known as Darius? Yeah, that's possible. Um, it's a little weird to call him a Mede, but again, he maybe what he did is being Cyrus, the Persian that he is, part of the way that he engendered the loyalty of the Medes was he took a Median name and called himself Darius the Mede. So maybe this is a reference to Cyrus himself. Another possibility people have proposed is that this, is, this Darius is not the king come later. This is an official. This is like a governor. This is like somebody that Cyrus set up because Cyrus is the ruler of the entire Persian empire. He doesn't need to hang out in Babylon necessarily. So maybe Darius is an official that Cyrus put in place to, to rule, to kind of lead Babylon as a governorship for him. And then that would fit with it being Cyrus, but also being Darius. So that's, that's a possibility. That doesn't seem possible to me. What doesn't seem possible? That it could be that Darius that comes later after Cyrus, because he comes in like the 
day it seems like that um the babylonian king leaves that's that's what that's the confusion right exactly the only reason people think it might be the same darius is because we know about the darius later and because the darius that we know about later does things that daniel talks about this darius doing now it's possible there are things that were done twice so it could be two different dariuses but that's why that's why people are like okay. well maybe this is the same guy and the chronology is just messed up maybe chapter six goes later and this reference to Darius just skips over Cyrus for some reason. And, and this is just 20 years later. Okay. Or do we have, yeah, go ahead, Lorraine. Do we have stories of, of Cyrus and Daniel interacting heavily? We do, which, well, oh, enough, okay. enough that, that, that that's part of the confusion. Yeah, my- Because I, I could see the connection between this story that we just read and the Darius story that's coming up where the writer might skip Cyrus and then come back to him later because they're like, look at sure. these two stories side by side, even though these rulers were not, um, even though there is something missing between that, Belshazzar was slain and Darius the mean took over the kingdom at the age of 62, where he's just sort of leaving out Cyrus for the moment to compare these two stories. I, I think it's that's a little a weird, but. I think that's a reasonable explanation. We already know the Hebrews are less concerned about linearity of, of progression than we are. They're more concerned about thematic history than they are linear history. I, that seems weird to us, but it's just the way it is. And so that's why the chronological Bible <laughs> is the way it is. And so I think that that's a reasonable understanding. I tend to, and I'll show you why in a second, I tend to lean towards the idea that Darius is an official of Cyrus. And this is not the Darius that we know of later um, in history. This is a, this is a different Darius who's an who's a, uh, official of Cyrus. Um, but I'll show you why I think that, but those are just, those are all, but I'm just, I'm just acknowledging, yes, it's a weird thing. It's a, it's a strange question about the chronology at this moment. Any other thoughts? All right, let's go on to chapter six. It pleased Darius. So, right. So whatever is happening, we move right on with this story. So like Lorian said, maybe it's just because it wants to talk about Darius now. So it just left out Cyrus. Um, or this is an official of Cyrus, or is Cyrus himself? And so either, then it's just the same thing. But here's what it says. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now, Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find ground for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. It's interesting. So they're jealous. They're worried because he's rising through the ranks again, as he's always done. And we can see why. He's, he's actually one of the few characters in scripture who we do not see the flaws of. That's not to say he doesn't have any, but he is just, he's just an incredibly good guy in every case in which we meet him in scripture. Um, and, and so right here is another example. He's rising up through the ranks. He's, he's potentially going to be in charge of the whole kingdom, which again might mean if Darius is a governor of Cyrus, it might mean he's gonna get Darius's job and Darius is gonna go do something else. Um, so he's thinking of putting him over the whole kingdom and the other satraps and administrators are like, that's not good. We, that's not fair. So let's catch him. He can't be that good. They can't find, he's so full of integrity. They can't find anything wrong. 
And what really impresses me is that he's so full of integrity that in order to catch him, they realize the only way we can make him look bad is by his own integrity. In other words, we know he's going to stay true to his God no matter what. He's not going to pretend not to. He's not going to lie about it. So if we can make him, if we can put him in a position where he has to choose between his job and his God, we will win because we know he has that much integrity. It's interesting. If he was more corruptible, that wouldn't work. If he was more, you know, less principled, that wouldn't work because then he could just he could just give up on being loyal to his God or he could lie about what he's doing. But they know the only way to catch him is to catch him because of his honesty, um, because of his integrity, which is very interesting. All right. So the very nature of this story, what the satraps do with Darius, is one of the reasons that I suspect Darius might be an official of Cyrus and not Cyrus himself. And that's because his response to them is very non-Cyrus-like. We've already talked about how Cyrus's tendency is to make nice with people. And Cyrus would never make a law which forced somebody to choose between their service of him and their worship of their God. He would go the opposite way. He would instead want to pretend he also worships their God so they would be loyal to him and then be in his service. So the satraps are able to fool Darius into creating a law which puts Daniel in this position that it seems like Cyrus would never do because he's just too canny for that, which is why it makes me wonder if Darius is not Cyrus, but if he is an official of Cyrus who kind of gets the vision of Cyrus, um, but, but not exactly, he doesn't see it as wholeheartedly. He's a little bit more easily sort of manipulated here than it seems like Cyrus would have been. Anyway, that's one of the reasons I wonder about him being an official, but let's go on. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, may King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all decreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. That's where it feels to me like Cyrus would have said, that's a dumb law. I have just spent all my time telling people that I worship the gods they worship. They worship the gods I worship. I'm not going to do that to them. Um, Based upon what we've seen in history, it feels like it wouldn't be done. But again, nobody's entirely consistent, except perhaps Daniel. Um, anyway, during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty issued the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medians and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Again, this is interesting, too, because the Medes and Persians have simply adopted, maybe they already had it, or they've adopted what we already know was a Babylonian law. Um, and what we'll know later from the book of Esther continues to be a Persian law, that the Persians and Medes cannot, that if they make a law, they can't unmake the law. It's supposed to be a way to make the king sort of less powerful. It's like a check and balance it's so that the king won't make stupid laws. It's actually exactly to prevent this kind of thing. So the king will stop and think before he makes a stupid law, knowing that even he can't repeal it. It's actually a fairly, um, for dictatorships and monarchies, it's, it's, it's sort of a... Uh, a it's not democratic, but it's, it's at least got a check and balance in it. It's an interesting limit on the king's power. But they even point out this is what's happening, and the king still doesn't catch it. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. And three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. I really want to point out, because I think it's such an important picture of integrity that is, I think, different from what a lot of people in our social media world think of as integrity. Daniel does not make a big thing of this. Do you see that? 
He doesn't go to the satraps, administrators, or to Darius and say, I can't do that. I'm only going to worship my God. He just does what he always does in his room, upstairs, quietly. The fact that the windows are open to Jerusalem is not to tell us, as I read in one commentator, it's not to tell us that he's like yelling out the windows so everybody knows what he's doing. It's to tell us that he's facing Jerusalem as he's praying. He's worshiping his God. That's the only point of the windows being open. But it's also showing he's not hiding. So he's not hiding it, but he's also not making a big thing of it. He just keeps doing what he's doing. He's going to ignore the edict, but he's also not going to make a big statement about it. And I think in our culture today, sometimes we think integrity means always making a big statement, always, always sort of being in the front and showing everybody how righteous you are. And I think Daniel isn't concerned about showing everyone how righteous he is. He's just concerned about being righteous. And I think that's, again, part of his integrity, that, that he's just going to keep doing what he's doing. He's not trying to force the issue. It says, in fact, they have to find him, right? They have to come find him in his room in order to catch him. You know, it isn't something that he is making a big deal. And probably there's a lot of people who are just continuing to ignore the edict. That would be my guess. But of course, it's Daniel they want to catch. So it's him they come find. And that's what it says. Then these men went oh. as a group. Uh, yeah, was someone saying something? I was just going to say, this makes me think of, I'm reading a study on Galatians and there's a verse where Paul says, you know, I'm not trying to please man, I'm trying to please God. And it was talking about the importance of those verses. And then she could say at the end, but you know, I think sometimes we think that this means we have to try to displease man. And it's not that. It's just, it's pleasing God over pleasing man, prioritizing that that's our goal. But that does not mean that our other goal is to actively displease man. And so this feels like that picture to me. He's going to keep pleasing God. He's not going to go pray in front of the state trapped houses just so that they see how pious he's being he's just going to stay in his lane and keep his focus on what it's supposed to be on that's really good i really like that i really like that and i think one of the reasons i think it's important is because it's harder to be self-righteous when that's your approach there are probably are times you have to take a public stand i'm not saying that's never true but but anytime you take a public stand there's always the risk that you're doing what jesus said of the pharisees standing on the street corner praying loudly you know that you're just trumpeting your own self-righteousness well daniel's definitely not doing that and i think that's part of why it's important but yeah i love this i, I love the picture too of these guys going as a group to his house to find him doing this thing you know it's it's very very intrusive um then these men went as a group and found daniel praying and asking god for help oh my so they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. They're just such, a, I mean, in, in our house, we just call this tattletale. I mean, you know, we're like, you don't have to go out of your way to find your siblings and tell on them. You know, it's, it's really not your job and it's okay. But that's what they do. They go find him. Oh my gosh, look at him praying. Then they go back and tell the king, we caught Daniel, we caught Daniel. So he says, so they went to the king and spoke to him about this royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law, with the needs and the persons, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. By the way, uh, uh, it, it also interesting is that they even acknowledge he still prays three times a day. It's also not like he started praying three times a day in response to the decree. It's not like he's like, well, now nah, I better do this. And, and I, I'll just be slightly uh, um, ornery here for a moment. Uh, one of the things that kind of annoyed me and made me chuckle during the pandemic was the number of people 
who got very upset that they weren't allowed to meet in church. And I know for a fact that some of those people had not been to a church for the year before that. So it's funny to me that they were like, now we really want to go gather in church because you won't let us. And Daniel isn't doing that. He's not like, well, now I'm going to start praying. Daniel was already praying three times a day. That's just what he did. And so they're like, he's still doing it. All right. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. So Darius really likes Daniel um, and he wants to save him, partly because he was so impressed with Daniel, he wanted him to rule the kingdom. I mean, part of this is this is a good man. This is a good employee. This is a good leader. And part of it might be that they just had a certain relationship with each other. This is interesting that Daniel, uh, to, to Lorraine's point about not displeasing men, Daniel seems to have been a, a, a pleasant guy to hang out with. Most people seem to have liked him. Nebuchadnezzar liked him. You know, Darius liked him. That's, that's saying a lot. And uh, these guys who can be with anybody they want. And, and so here's Darius and he tries, he's trying to figure out, you know, he's like scouring the laws and trying to figure out, is there any way that I can rescue Daniel from this? But he can't. Then the man, the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, remember your majesty that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. They're like, there's no way out of this. So the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. And the king said to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually rescue you. Again, a statement of Daniel's integrity. Here's the guy throwing him in the lion's den, the guy who's his boss, and his boss looks at him and says, all I know about you is that you are always serving your God, which again goes back to why did you make this stupid decree? You, if you'd given half a thought, you would have known Daniel would have a problem with it. Um, but he says, you're, you're, may your integrity save you. Your integrity got you in trouble. You know, your, your commitment to your God got you in trouble. May your God rescue you. May your, your integrity rescue you both. May your God, whom you serve, continually rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. He really cares. He really likes him. He's really bugged. He's really bothered by this. He's, you know, he's just worried. And at the first light of dawn, and as soon as he can, so... There must be something about the understanding of what it meant to throw him in the lion's den. The sentence itself must have literally meant overnight. So it's like as soon as he can, he rushes back there. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. And when he came near to the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually. It's like, I know if anybody deserves to be rescued by their God, it's you. <laughs> because you are so faithful. May your God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Even that, it's not even like, has your God wanted to? It's like Darius assumes, yeah, of course, uh, your God would want to rescue, but is he able to? Is he big enough? Can he do this? Daniel answered, which must have been an amazing moment, because you got to imagine Darius doesn't really expect to get an answer. I mean, he's hoping, but he's hoping against hope. You know, he's like, this is, this is crazy. Or maybe he's going to hear Daniel's, you know, dying throes if he's really lucky. But here's Daniel's strong voice. Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions through the, through the stone, through the, 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 the boulder and the signet rings. Um, it's kind of reminiscent for us of the, the tomb, you know, coming out. The stone's been rolled away. In this case, it wasn't even rolled away. May, may God, my God send his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight nor have I ever done anything wrong before you, your majesty. Daniel's like, really, you know, the truth is I have never been against you. You just made a decree I couldn't follow. 
but I've always been a supporter. I've always been, you know, working hard for you. You know that, you know, I haven't really done anything wrong. And the king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. It is kind of hilarious. Nebuchadnezzar does the same thing. Right after they make a decree, you know, forcing everyone to worship them, they like to turn around and make a decree forcing everyone to worship Daniel's God, which I'm not sure would be what Daniel would have sort of recommended. Uh, maybe it would have, but that's that, that seems to be the result. Um, Meredith, I saw you on mute. Was there something you were going to say? Oh, yeah. Well, and he also says Daniel's servant of the living God, which yep. I find a little interesting. Yep. Yeah, he has some respect for Daniel's God because of Daniel, it seems like, same like Nebuchadnezzar did. And he, he said that even when he asked Daniel if, his li if the living God had saved him. But you're right, he goes on and says it here as well. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. This could be legit or... This could be sort of the Cyrus doctrine, right? What do you do? How do you get the loyalty of people? People really like Daniel. Well, you just say, yep, this is proof. Daniel's God is a great God because then you're going to get that, that support of that Jewish contingent. So it depends how cynically you decide to look at this moment, whether it is a genuine sort of recognition. I think there's got to be some because it's a pretty big miracle um, or whether it's just kind of a continuation of, of their approach to things. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Now, do you guys all see who has the Bible? And do you see a little note there next to that last sentence? I think it's in this translation. Does anybody see yeah, a note? Or, or Darius, that is the reign of Cyrus. There you go. Notice the difference that makes. What it, that is saying that possibly the way that should be translated is, so Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius. That is during the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So that mm -hmm. would indicate either that Darius is Cyrus or it still leaves the possibility that Darius is an official of Cyrus, right? Because the reign of Darius would also be the reign of Cyrus the Persian. And it would be weird to call Cyrus the Persian Darius the Mede. I think it's more likely that Darius the Mede is an officer of Cyrus the Persian. And that, that fits with that note, that potential translation, that it's not saying Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and during the reign of Cyrus the Persian, but it means the same thing, that the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian are at the same time. And Darius is just the reigning over Babylon, while Cyrus is reigning over the entire nation. Um, so that, to me, leads, lends credence to, uh, to that particular theory that that's what's happening here. That Darius just happens to have the same name as a Darius we know later, historically, um, who was the king of, of Persia. So that was fast for us. So uh, any comments, any thoughts, any questions? Let's chat just a little bit, and then we'll all go home early. I mean, I know we're already home, but, you know. I really like Daniel's humility and trust in God. I mean, I like even just like where he was not accepting or not even wanting to accept the, you know, the robe and everything. He's like, okay, whatever, you know, he's just 
like following God and he's just, you know, doing his thing that he should be doing. And, you know, he's been through all these different like Kings and, you know, empires and stuff. And I agree. I, he's an amazing example. I think he really is. And, and, you know, when, when you read through it, you realize his, his popularity sort of as a, as a, a biblical character is justified you know he is an amazing individual with a lot of humility a lot of integrity even like you say that moment when he's like i don't want your rewards but he's still like but i'm going to tell you what it says because again if he's just being grumpy he could say i don't want your rewards and i'm not going to help you out you know not that it really helped but you know i'm not going to tell you but he's like yeah i'm going to do that like he said i'm just going to do what god tells me to do i don't want your rewards then god gives him the rewards through through belshazzar anyway which may set him up for where he ends up with with Darius, uh, you know, being still uh, over all these other areas that, that maybe Darius was like, so this is what we do. We come in, we conquer, and then we make nice. And one way to make nice is say, look, Daniel was third highest in command. He should be in charge of things. And then as Daniel does a good job, he thinks, in fact, let's put him in charge of all of Babylon, which would be impressive. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't appear to happen. Um, it's not clear, but we never read that Daniel is like king of Babylon. That would be that would be interesting. Any other thoughts? I think it is funny how aggressively Daniel dislikes Belshazzar. <laughs> like even Darius, who throws in the lion's den, comes to yep. check on him and Daniel's like, may the king live forever. But Belshazzar, he's like, I'm not even sorry. You've been measured and found wanting. See, I don't want your stuff. It is true. There is a real distaste for Belshazzar. You, you, you can, and it makes you wonder, you know, what? exactly happened there you know and again the like, fact even that he's not serving that he's apparently just right. living in the kingdom you know something happened there's a there's a story there for sure i agree with you because he's so he's so congenial with everybody that it is pretty peculiar with belshazzar he's like what do you have to do to be less welcome than the guy who tried to let lions eat you even through buffoonery i think you'd be like a little bit like okay we're not or three in the furnace I mean, that the no, he didn't you in throw him. Oh, you're right. He didn't throw you're Daniel right. in the furnace. You're right. But Never his buddy. Just his friends. That's right. Yeah. Through your friends in the furnace. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, although, I mean, he did go through all this stuff with Nebuchadnezzar and kind of go back and forth. And then, even in what he like says to him, he's like, you saw all this and you still didn't do anything and then I mean he sees them like drinking and like out of the goblets you know from the temple I mean no I think that's true but God seems when... to make a pretty big deal about you oh no I'm not arguing with you guys it's just that I'm trying to think why this is so much like bigger than other seeming instances well I think that's it I mean I, why it is to God or not it, I don't know. And I don't know that it is. Again, what happens to Nebuchadnezzar is pretty significant. Nebuchadnezzar goes crazy for seven years. He loses his kingdom for seven years. That is a pretty significant um, punishment as well. Um, I mean, he doesn't die, but that's pretty significant. So, I, you know, and, and, and even that, you know, even when Daniel is like telling Nebuchadnezzar, this is what's going to happen to you. He knows it's because Nebuchadnezzar is going to take the place of God, which must be very offensive to Daniel, very repulsive to Daniel. But even then, Daniel's just kind of a little bit more respectful. Um, but yes, maybe it's because Belshazzar has the lesson, like you said, of Nebuchadnezzar and doesn't make any changes. You know, he's just seems so completely resistant. 
And that might also explain why there is no opportunity for repentance. Maybe that's the point. You know, your, your days are numbered. You've been measured. And part of the measuring of you is that you've had opportunities and you are just showing yourself to be completely stubborn. You're not going to change no matter what. And even when he does honor Daniel, that doesn't necessarily mean he repented. It could just mean he's trying to bribe God, which is not the same thing as repentant. You know, he might have been like, well, I'll help out Daniel and then maybe things will get better, um, you know, because maybe he even thinks that Daniel's actually the one in control. That's a common thing that happened with prophets, right? People blamed them for, for what God was going to do. So maybe he thought, I'll be nice to Daniel and Daniel will relent and I won't get killed. So none of that shows necessarily that Belshazzar repented at all. It doesn't, doesn't appear that he did. Any other thoughts? Anybody else? I do love these stories, I, and, and I do love Daniel's integrity and quiet integrity. Like I say, there's something about him. He keeps becoming so powerful, and yet in it all, he is so, he really has a, uh, he seems to have a genuine humility and a, and a yeah. genuine sort of quietness to him. Even like I say, he just keeps praying. It's not a big thing. He's not making a protest. He's not making a statement. He just keeps praying, and it's cool. And of course, they're very encouraging too, because they are because God is very faithful to protect Daniel, to protect his friends. And that's, that's obviously encouraging as well. He is a yeah. lot like Joseph, even his rise through the ranks, but without yeah. the, I think the one, and we don't see a lot of Joseph's flaws, but I think if we do see a flaw of Joseph, it's his hubris a little yeah. bit that he matures yep. out of. And so. we don't see that in Daniel. At least think, it's not on display. It's not shown to us. Not that he was perfect, but. No, I, I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. Thank you for joining us. The Journey is a ministry of Discipleship Matters, which is an extension of Focus Church and is created by David McGill for the purpose of helping equip pastors to build discipleship communities in their own churches. If you'd like to learn more about the books and conferences and coaching offered by David, you can check out his website, davidmcgill.com.